0: Hello everyone, welcome to Teaching with Magic, a podcast exploring the intersection of education, fantasy, and literacy. Here at Teaching with Magic, we explore the different ways that teachers in the fiction and in the real world make magic for their students. You'll hear discussions about teachers and teaching methods in fantasy, science fiction, and pop culture. You'll hear interviews with scholars in various fields about important topics in education, and you'll get to be a part of an ongoing conversation about why the imagination matters. Welcome to Teaching with Magic.
1: Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining us today. I am your host, Elise Trudell-Cedeno, and today we're boarding the Hogwarts Express. We're talking about teaching in the Harry Potter series. I'm joined today by Potter scholar Lana Whited who has taught several courses for college students and high school academic summer camps. Lana Whited edited the first collection of essays on the Harry Potter series, The Ivory Tower and Harry Potter in 2002, as well as a Critical Insight series volumes on the Harry Potter novels in 2015 with M. Catherine Grimes, as well as the Hunger Games trilogy. Dr. Whitehead is Director of the Boone Honors Program and Professor of English at Ferrum College in Virginia and earned degrees at Emory and Henry College, the College of William and Mary, Hollins and UNC Greensboro for her PhD. She has received the Exemplary Teaching Award from the Council of Higher Education of the United Methodist Church and was a 2016 nominee for the State Council of Higher Education of Virginia's Outstanding Faculty Awards. Her most recent book is Murder, In Fact, Death and Disillusionment in the American True Crime Novel. Lana, welcome to Teaching with Magic. Thank you so
2: much. I'm very excited to talk with you today. And I I also wanted to add that if it were about two weeks later, I hope my most recent book would be a follow-up to the Ivory Tower volume, which is called The Ivory Tower, Harry Potter and Beyond. And it is a collection of essays about all the works of J.K. Rowling, including some that really have not received much in the way of um, of critical attention in terms of literary scholarship, The Casual Vacancy, The Cursed mm-hmm. Child. Uh, my own essay in that volume is about the Ichabog, which is a book I like very much. Uh, the Fantastic Beasts film series. So I'm really excited about that and looking forward to seeing it.
1: Excellent. You said that's coming out in two weeks?
2: I think the official publication date is December twenty second. So we'll see when it
1: turns up in my mailbox. Should be well- soon. There you go. Hey, Merry Christmas! Yeah. Yeah. and you also have an essay in the most recent Potterversity uh, essays in on the Harry Potter series that was edited by Dr. Katie McDaniel and Emily Strand.
2: Yeah, I kind of think of Katie and Emily, and also Louise Freeman, as my marauders. You know, I, I and I said this actually in the um, in the preface to the new edition because we work together so frequently, and I think. You know, the the very best thing, Elise, about being in Harry Potter Studies is all the people that I've met along the way, all the friendships that have developed, including you, of course. And oh. you know, it's it's just been so much fun to meet people and be involved in their lives. And and I do think that that it's that Potter Studies is a really fertile kind of uh, area for that reason. Um as I've said to you before, it's it's mm. deeply weird to have written an essay about the film series when it has now been aborted and it doesn't look as though, you know, there'll ever be uh, a fourth and fifth film. Um, my essay is about a theme that I saw developing in that series concerning the alignment of the phoenix with Albus Dumbledore and the alignment of the dragon with Grindelwald. Um, and I distinctly remember a moment in the second film when Grindelwald was talking about that vision of wizarding supremacy and he mm. exhales that blue smoke and I thought oh my gosh she's a dragon um and that I I mean that idea really occurred to me that quickly and then I started looking into uh the mythology of the dragon and Phoenix especially in in Asian folklore um and the significance of that is that the most the most fortunate thing is when the dragon and the phoenix occur together so the yeah. interaction of you know dumbledore and and Grindelwald, um obviously is very important i was really hoping that series would continue to the point mm. that we need to see that confrontation over the elder wand in 1945 so uh, still hoping that might happen at
1: some point i guess you never know you really do you really never know and even if It doesn't happen on the big screen. I'm sure there are people out there who will take it from a fandom perspective or from a fan fiction perspective and continue it because that's something that's really prevalent in the Harry Potter series as well is taking the series itself and making it their own when the work of the author is not particularly satisfying, at least in certain certain respects. I have not
2: spent very much time looking at Harry Potter fan fiction and that's something Mm. I really like to do.
1: Yeah, I know there are quite a few scholars who do, and I know Amy Sturgis, as a fandom studies professor, is really good at that as well. Um, and I've I've talked with Amy Sturgis about Star Wars fandom, but not too much about Harry Potter fandom. Um, but let us start from the beginning, as it were. So what what subjects do you teach, um, and can you describe them for for us uh, or the or for those who might be unfamiliar with your discipline? What's your subject? What's your what do you teach, and how do you teach it?
2: I actually spent the first 20 years of my career at Ferrum teaching uh, journalism for at least half my load. I was the coordinator of the journalism program and advised the campus newspaper. And that's frankly why I got hired at Ferrum, I think, originally, because they were looking for somebody to do that. But for the most part, I've always taught writing courses. Um, My Ph.D. specialization is in 20th century British and American literature, I've never really taught British literature to any great extent except for a novel here and there in a novel course. The novel as a genre is one of the areas in which I'm really interested and in. I have taught novel courses at Ferrum. But um when the Harry Potter series came along around that time, I audited a children's literature course on our campus taught by my colleague Tina Handlin and that was really the beginning of my interest in children's and YA literature. It is not something I studied in graduate school, um, and even though I got certification, uh, teaching certification as an undergraduate, I don't ever remember taking a children's literature course or a YA literature course, and that's sort of remarkable to me. Most of what I teach at Fairham includes writing courses, and I also teach a couple of seminars in our honors program in addition to directing it. Um, my, my truly relevant course Uh, to our conversation today is a course called Harry Potter and the Hero Myth," And I've been teaching that course now for about 15 or 16 years. Um, Mostly I teach it in the classroom, although occasionally I teach it online through a consortium that that Farron belongs to. Just finished teaching at the fall semester and um, we do not read all the Harry Potter novels. Students are kind of surprised when they come into the course to find that we're not going to go through each of the Harry Potter novels. We typically read Prisoner of Azkaban, which I think is probably my favorite. I think that's a lot of people's favorite uh, of the novels. But we also, we um, reading list changes, but we always read Gilgamesh. We always read The Sword and the Stone. Um, we always read The Epic of Sunjata, which is a West African Hero myth, um, and we watch a film version. Sometimes we have read the text, but more often we watch a film version of a hero story called Hong Gil-dong, um, which is Korean. I include that work in the course because I had an exchange student one semester from South Korea who um, chose that work. One of the assignments I use in the course late in the semester is to ask students to choose a hero myth of their own and apply the theory that we have discussed in the course. And that includes things like Joseph Campbell, of course, Otto Ronk. Um, We talk about the tragic hero and have a lecture about characteristics of the tragic hero. I ask them to choose some of the theory and then to apply that uh, to a hero myth that they choose. And this young man talked about Hong Gildong, and and I realized, largely because I didn't have an Asian example in the course, um, I started including that work on the syllabus. And it's a Robin Hood story. It's about a young man. I'm not sure whether you know it or not. It's about a young man who's second son of a kind of a regional uh, governor. And as the second son in a very hierarchical culture, he's really persona non grata. He's expected to go out and make his own way in the world. His mother is a concubine, um, so she has low status in the household there are actually a lot of similarities between the hong Yildong story and the epic of sunjata because sunjata also is the son of a woman who's given to his father as a prize these hunters come along and they have this woman who's called the buffalo woman and they she's been given to them as a prize um and so she becomes Sunjata's mother. And Sunjata, like Oedipus as a child, doesn't walk well. He has some foot deformity and doesn't walk until about the age of, you know, it's probably seven, because seven is always the magic number in hero stories. And I think that's about the point when he actually begins to walk. Um, and then, and and this is a historical uh hero myth, like the like the story of Gilgamesh, and then he becomes the founder of the Empire of Mali. So, um, so I like having those examples from other parts of the world. I think in the early years when I taught the course, too many of the texts were um, works that were originally written in English. And I've tried to diversify that a little bit. So yeah, but that's the most relevant uh, course that I teach at Ferrum uh, to our conversation today.
1: And I also remember listening to an episode of Potterversity where you, talked to, where you were invited to talk about arithmancy Because that's a subject that you taught in like a high school camp on Harry Potter. Can you talk a little more about the high school camp as well? You know, it wasn't even high school. It was middle school. (gasps) It's fun things I've ever done in my life. Yeah,
2: I think, as I mentioned before, I did have certification when I finished my undergraduate degree. Um, And I've never taught on, on a level below college other than my student teaching experience. But if I did that, I would definitely want to teach middle schoolers because- I find that at least until about eighth grade, you know, they're still really enthusiastic and their hormones haven't kicked in yet. And they haven't really started to be terribly preoccupied with with their love interests and all that sort of thing. And I just really like that age group. So the camp, this was a a camp on our campus uh, that went on for oh gosh, I don't know, over 20 years, I taught in it probably about 10, my course was called Hogwarts Academy, the campers were rising fifth graders to um, about seventh grade, and um, so they were, for the most part, I guess 10, 11, 12, um, a few of those campers subsequently came to Ferrum College and were four-year students, and that was kind of exciting. Um, a few of them I'm still in touch with today. In fact, during the pandemic, I recorded a uh, podcast with Katie and Emily. It was a Potterversity podcast. It may have been Reading, Writing, Rolling then, but we recorded a podcast, and I invited one of my Ferrum students and two young people who had been in that in that summer program We talked about, because those students were currently either in their final year of college or their final year of high school, we talked about their experience of having their final year abbreviated in exactly the same way that Harry, Ron, and Hermione do in in Deathly Hallows and how being fans of the Harry Potter series had really informed their thinking and their feelings about that experience, and it was really great to have those students whom I had initially met when they were in, you know, fifth or sixth grade as, as 18 year olds or 21, 22 year olds, you know, looking back on that experience. But anyway, what we do is for one week, five days, um, we essentially play Hogwarts. We have Hogwarts style classes. One of my colleagues in chemistry uh, would always have a potions class And so that was one of our, each day during the week, we had a particular class. And we also did wand making and several other things. Um, I particularly liked teaching ancient runes. And I liked having students make themselves a set of runes. The class actually operated on two levels. It became so popular that some students would come back for subsequent years and they would want to take it again. So I used the concept of owls and newts to kind of distinguish the two levels of that class. So the students who were taking owls were doing the required Hogwarts subject. And they're the ones who had potions and um, uh, history of magic. And um, and I tried not to be as boring as Professor Benz. And uh, charms, you know, we would talk about the, the Latinate nature of some of the names that Rowling uses for charms. So that was the owls class. And then the Newt's class. Um, the students had elective subjects, and that those are the students who had arithmetic and ancient runes and uh, care of magical creatures and and those other subjects. That's about the most fun I've ever had in a classroom. I will tell you. I mean, it was really fun, and unfortunately, it stopped when the pandemic began, and it hasn't resumed because the person who directed it for many years retired uh, from the college, but it was a lot of fun and students were taking lots of other classes at the same time as well my course was just one of their four courses during the day so they might have also been taking crime scene investigation or cooking or french or you know one of the other courses
1: but clearly yours was the fun one it was it that's that's clear to me yours is the, your your course was the one that really got them thinking and you made a magical setting for them and the courses you taught are clearly you know, these are things that bridge into our muggle world and, you know, chemistry, potions, they go together. Care of magical creatures, you're learning about, uh, what, what was it, like a, a, a bestiary, like an ancient bestiary or like current animals? I mean, those things, they, they all go together. And clearly through. it was memorable.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that was, it was a lot of fun. It was surprising to me how much those students really wanted to live the Hogwarts experience. I mean, they came to camp and brought their house robes and wore their house robes to class. We played Quidditch. That was that was probably, you know, for me, that was probably about the best part. We went out at least one day during the week and we all played Quidditch. And that was an activity for the camp that everybody came to watch. All the other campers came to, you know, kind of be the, the spectators.
1: Uh, and that was really a lot of fun. Yeah, Quidditch, it's real. People, people, I mean, we, we see it at, when we go to Chestnut Hill, don't we? There there are actual Quidditch matches. So what is it about fantasy texts that you particularly enjoy and enjoy teaching? What is it about them that speaks to you and the subject area that you teach?
2: You know, I think fantasy is the most subversive genre. And I, I have heard lots of people talk about the force of the imagination as being the most important force in terms of changing the world, solving problems, um, and I really find that students who are really exceptional. And as an honors director, I deal with a lot of students who really are exceptional. The one of the qualities that really seem to set them apart from other students who are solid students, you know, earning an undergraduate degree and successful students. One of the things that really sets Exceptional students apart is the quality of their imagination and their ability to kind of think outside the box to use a cliche and I think fantasy literature encourages that part of it is that we don't necessarily have to think in terms of the kinds of things that can realistically happen. Um, We always started out in my, uh, in my hero myth course we start out by talking about what magic is. Uh, and why we call certain kinds of things magic, why we call wizards, wizards, um, which involves necessarily talking about science and and how we process the kinds of things that defy the laws of nature. Um, so I think it's the emphasis on imagination that attracts me more than anything else. But it's really interesting for me. I mean, considering that I've devoted now... Probably 23 years of my life to primarily to Harry Potter studies. I mean, I think that's the way that I'm primarily known as a scholar. It's interesting that I didn't really grow up as a devoted reader of fantasy. I mean, I watched The Wizard of Oz. I never read the novels. I read Alice in Wonderland. I read The Secret Garden, um, which is not really fantasy, I suppose. But, you know, I um for the most part, I was a reader of of more realistic kinds of of fiction. So this really is an interest that I have come to as a middle-aged adult um, and wasn't really preoccupied with when I was a young person myself. And that's interesting to me. Um, But it's also interesting to me how magical elements and fantasy stories intersect with real life. And I think the sword and the stone is a good example. You know, I talk with students about why T.H. White decided to retell the stories of Arthur in the immediate aftermath of World War II um, and why he was thinking about power and how power is exercised and the mistakes people can make uh, in using power. Why the Lord of the Rings is essentially, I mean, in terms of its composition, contemporary to World War II. Um, So I think it it seems to me like the imagination in those works is really critical to to solving the problems that face those protagonists, which for the most part are real world problems. Um, they just exist in a different
1: in a different format in the real world. I think. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. Um, the imagination is, as you say, it's how do we? That's how we get innovation. That's how you know we solve problems is by applying our imagination. And that's something that our students need to learn to develop. Absolutely. You've taught for several different age ranges. You've taught the, the camps, you've taught for college students. What are some of the similarities and differences in your approaches to teaching fantasy? And what are some of the different ways that students interact with and react to the subject material?
2: I will say, for me, it was a lot more challenging to teach the middle schoolers probably than it was to teach my traditional college-age students because, you know, I already knew how to do that. I mean, for one thing, you know, I I kind of have them as a as a captive audience. I mean, there are certain kinds of guidelines in place that prevent them from getting out and walking out of the room in the middle of the of the conversation, but. But for the younger kids, I mean, what we did had to be a lot more active. It had to be a lot more experiential and it had to move a lot faster. And I was always faced with the problem on any given day. I would kind of have a plan for that day and then I would have two or three extra activities that I could give to the kids who finished everything I had planned for us to do in three fourths of the time, you know, that we were supposed to have to do it because it it seemed like the kids were always moving at different paces and, so On some days we would have times when they could work on various things. As I mentioned, we made wands and we couldn't do that all on the same day because we had to wait for paint to dry and glue to dry and things like that. So we would always have some time during the class when students could do one of a number of things, including I created a kind of library. In the room, even at the beginning of the time that I started teaching the middle school course, I had a lot of Harry Potter, you know, ancillary kinds of resources myself, John Granger's books, and and gradually books by uh, other people and readers' companions and things like that. So there were some students who would want to pick up those and read in, in every, uh, every opportunity. Some students wanted to borrow books and take them back to their residence. Hall and bring them back later in the week. And I don't think I ever lost a book um, during that time. But but the younger students really, you know, we had to move faster. I had to have a lot more uh, kinds of things planned. Um, it was really a lot more challenging, I think, for me than teaching the college students who typically tend to be sophomores although I do get students who are juniors and seniors in the course we don't have a specific literature requirement at my institution anymore but we used to and when we did my course was one of those that met that requirement and a lot of students would take that immediately as sophomores once they finished the freshman writing requirement but some students put it off and take it later on um But, you know, that course really felt a lot more typical for me because it was more like the other courses that I teach. Although I've had students come to the college course in their house robes as well.
1: Um, Got to have the house robes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right. I wonder, I'm curious how Hero's Journey, it seems to come up a lot in your work and it comes up, uh, it comes up all over fantasy. That's like, that's such a prevalent theme. Why do you think that particular framework is relevant to our students today? Why do we keep coming back to the hero's journey, do you think? Well, there's the
2: intersection of literature with psychology, I think. Um, I think it's because of the prevalence of that archetype. It's like the question, why are there ever 800 variants of a story that we in the European tradition called Cinderella or Mm. Ash Puddle, you know, a story about a a girl who lives with a, typically a step family or someone who's not her biological family, who are not particularly nice to her. Harry Potter really is a Cinderella story in a sense, or a Cinderfella story, I suppose. Um, And, and who then is, is recognized as being something that the that this family he or she has grown up in has not recognized about that person. You know, I think the primary appeal of that pattern is psychological. Um when you think about it, almost all heroes are common. Many of them are small. Frodo's a hobbit, for example, Bilbo's a hobbit. Um, And people who think of themselves as initially unlikely to be able to uh, achieve whatever it is they're challenged with. Campbell calls that the refusal of the call. You know, it's like the scene in which Frodo says to Gandalf, why did this have to happen in my time? Why couldn't it have happened in some other time? It's one of my favorite scenes in all of literature. Um, Same thing happens with Moses who essentially says, why me? I don't think I'm the person who needs to do this. I don't even speak Plainly, I'm not particularly eloquent. Um, You know, I think those kinds of stories and the eventual success of those heroes help us to feel that we can achieve something that is greater than we can imagine at the outset of the journey. And also in every case that there will be people who will show up to help us along the way you know, I think those archetypes that persist persist because they gratify our deepest psychological needs. Um, I don't know if this is a good example, but in my Hogwarts Academy class, I really struggled early on with how to teach defense against the dark arts because, you know, obviously I couldn't have students practicing crucio on each other um, in the classroom. And so what I settled on that was our art class. And I gave all the students, you know, drawing materials, essentially. And I asked them to draw their deepest fear because the defense against the dark arts at, at a basic level is about dealing with your fears and how to overcome your fears uh, and how to and, and what you do when you have to confront them. I think that's the whole point of the bug art lesson for example and so and we watched the bog art lesson when we did that class and then I asked students to draw the thing that they were most afraid of and I think this is in some ways a kind of a challenging lesson for 10 11 12 year olds. a lot of them drew, drew spiders and snakes and sharks and hurricanes and their houses burning down and you know the the kinds of things that are on the list of uh, typical fears, but the students who really were thoughtful about that assignment, can you guess what they drew? I mean, the students who Ooh. who really were very honest about that, can you guess what the greatest fear of that age group is? Being alone? Yeah, it's the death of their parents. They drew oh. cemeteries with their parents' names on tombstones. Not their own death, but the death of their parents and you know when you think about it yeah these heroes is not alone or nearly alone yeah Frodo's parents have been killed in a boating accident yeah Harry's parents have been killed by Voldemort Katniss Everdeen has a mother but she's ineffectual you know she's not not a person who functions in any significant way that is helpful to Katniss again and again and again. So many of these figures, you know, start out um as as parentless. Um, and you know, we talked about the fact that part of the point of the Bogart lesson is acknowledging your fear, that the first step is acknowledging what your fear is being being honest about that and then we talk about why that's such a great fear for young people in that particular age group my guess is if i asked my college students to draw their greatest fear that's not what they would draw they're more afraid of things like not being successful not being able to support themselves you know because they're older they've gotten past that stage but many heroes there are exceptions like moses but many heroes start out in their journey at about the same age as the kids in my Hogwarts Academy class. So for those students, you may be familiar with uh, Catherine Grimes's essay in the Ivory Tower and Harry Potter, Harry Potter's fairy tale Prince, Real Boy, and Archetypal Hero. Catherine's argument is that for those young people who were really close to Harry's age, who may have been 10 or 11 when the Harry Potter books started coming out, or who might be 10 and 11 when they start reading them, A lot of the things that happen to Harry are happening in their lives. You know, they're having to deal with teachers who don't seem to like them, who seem to prefer other students over them. They're starting to have feelings for people they're romantically interested in and don't know what to do about that. Other students pick on them. And they have to think about how to respond without embarrassing themselves or without being teased by other students. Um, So. For students of that particular age, despite the magic, a lot of what's going on in Harry's life is pretty real to them. When I put together the Hunger Games collection, I read a very interesting essay in The New Yorker about the appeal of dystopia to the YA reading audience. And the author of that essay said, essentially, adolescence itself is a dystopia. You know, when you're an adolescent, you feel like the world's kind of falling apart and there's not so much you can do about it. And whatever you're feeling in the moment is going to be true forever. And if there's something wrong in your life, everybody knows it, right? Because we have adolescent egocentrism. We think everybody knows what's going on with us. So, you know, for that particular age group, I think the fantasy and the magic is appealing. But I also think there's something really realistic about those, about those experiences that resonates with those young readers that, and, and I think, you know, older people read the series differently, especially older people who've read a lot of literature and who, who read those archetypes
1: consciously and not subconsciously. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm one of those students who I literally grew up with the Harry Potter novels, so I remember resonating with Harry and resonating with Hermione and Ron as they went through. And now I have a completely different perspective now that I'm an adult and I'm I'm going back to these novels. So this is, I mean, it's it's very cyclical, you know. And the the hero's journey is, you know, the way Campbell puts it, it is very cyclical. It's a, and I think that's in your exercise for defense against the dark arts is very valuable and immediately what popped into my mind is exactly what harry would have seen if the Bogart had come out and you know of course lupin's first reaction is oh wouldn't you have seen voldemort and harry says no i would have been a dementor right which you know speaks to uh, as lupin says his wisdom that it's not he what he's afraid of is fear itself that's absolutely right
2: that's absolutely right and in terms of that cyclical nature of the hero's journey I think it's in uh, the four quartets that T.S. Eliot wrote those lines about how the point of adventuring is to return to the place where you started from and to know the place for the first time it's yeah. like when it comes to Gilgamesh at the end of epic the epic of Gilgamesh when he gets back to Uruk and he looks at this magnificent city that he's built but he sees it differently because he's had that experience
1: Exactly. And, you know, if you look at the Chronicles of Narnia, I remember, you know, I went through my own uh, issues as a kid, and I would say to my mom, I wish I could go to Narnia. And she would say to me, well, sure, you could go to Narnia. But remember, the kids came back, right? The kids always came back. So what are you going to do if you leave, and you're going to come back? How is it going to change you? And yeah. I still haven't quite answered that question yet. But I still want to go to Narnia. You know, I still I still want to peek into my closet every so often.
2: And that's another great example of of a fantasy series where you have the the really close proximity of the fantasy world to the real world
1: exactly. You've kind of answered this question a little already, but what is the value of fantasy, particularly in the classroom? Um I mean, in our current world, and to many of students who might be coming into Ferrum as either either in the honors program or otherwise, college is a place to get a degree learn the skills for employment so then how is reading harry potter going to get somebody a job what is it's a very dursley. i've said it before but it's a very dirgley-ish attitude but it's it's a common attitude you know this is you know the point of college is to get a degree so you can get a job so why read harry potter why read fantasy Why, why read dystopian novels You know, that's that's an increasing
2: tension in higher education because students, parents want them to be business majors. So they'll make a lot of money or, you know, if they're athletes, they often major in health and human performance because they want to work in fitness or maybe go to graduate school in physical therapy or something like that. But, you know, if you look at surveys, we we say this a lot in our recruiting for our, our program. If you look at surveys about the skills employers are looking for. They don't say they're looking for students who can make a lot of money or they're using for stu- looking for students who are really capable with technology. They say they want people with solid oral and written communication skills. That's always at the very top of what employers are are looking for. And I really stress in my college class, I really stress the importance not only of being able to write about literature, but being able to talk about it. Um, the, the project I described earlier when I asked students to pick a hero myth of their own And to apply the theory from our course to that, that they don't write a paper in conjunction with that assignment, they give a presentation to the class and then there's a question on the final exam that requires them to draw on some of those presentations that they have heard. Um, I think that there is really a direct... Uh, correlation between individuals' critical thinking skills and their ability to process texts. Whether those texts are are books or films or are musical compositions or whatever. I mean, I think that I think that skill is really important, probably more important now than previously, because we have evolved into a a kind of a culture where um I, I think we're so, education is so skills-based, you know, higher education these days is very much about things like micro-credentials, and uh, at least on my campus, it is, and moving away, I think, from from liberal arts concepts like critical thinking skills and quantitative reasoning skills, and if, if those kinds of, um, what are sometimes perceived as soft skills i guess if those are lost from the curriculum i think that'll be really sad and we as a society will change i've been thinking about about climate change a lot because of the um the meeting that's going on in dubai this week uh, where the global community is looking at climate change issues my my minister's wife who is one of my colleagues in environmental science is at that meeting my niece who works for a congressman is at that meeting. And, you know, if we're going to solve problems like climate change, we've got to read fantasy literature. We have to know science, obviously, but we also have to have the kind of imagination to come up with, with solutions to those problems.
1: Exactly. I mean, how are we going to, if we can't envision what the, I mean, isn't most dystopian literature imagining what will happen if we don't solve these problems? I think it is. I mean, I think it is. And if you look Oof. at the history
2: of dystopian literature, it really emerged for the first time between the first and second world war. Yeah. With right. the Russian novel We We Guinea Zamyatin and then Brave New World in about nineteen thirty-two and then a little bit later, nineteen forty-eight. And you know, in terms of, of young adult dystopian literature, I think that really is accelerates again after the September eleventh attack. Yeah. But but there's almost always a direct correspondence between those kinds of dangers in the world um, and the surge of fantasy literature. And, and that's really interesting to me. It is, yeah. Um, I mean, I... It's a little anecdote, sure. but I think really indicates the way that, that young adults process that in Daniel Nixon's book, Daniel Nixon teaches or taught international relations at Georgetown University, and he has a book called Harry Potter and International Relations, I think. There's a story, it's either in that book or maybe in his blog, I can't remember where he wrote it, but he said that the, the morning after Osama bin Laden was assassinated, he was aware, teaching at Georgetown, he was aware that there had been a lot of people congregating outside the gates at the White House uh, I think that President Obama was going to have a press conference late that night around 11 or something. And and so the following morning, uh, Daniel Nixon asked his students, did any of you go down to the White House light, last night? And one of them said, of course. I mean, they got Voldemort. Wow. So, you know, that's a good example of the way that fantasy worlds and real world events intersect in the way that that young people who've grown up reading the harry potter series process those real world events through the lens of fantasy literature
1: yeah they were able to put a face to the fear they were able to put an image to the to the fear that was otherwise not um concrete that otherwise was was abstract for them so that's incredible
2: It's a profound influence. Um, Jack Gierzynski, who's the author of Harry Potter and the Millennials, attributes the election of Barack Obama in part to the fact that the generation of young people who grew up reading the Harry Potter novels voted for the first time in a presidential election, uh, the first time Barack Obama was elected.
1: I believe that. Uh, If I could go back a little bit, What do you think, you know, you've and again you've touched on this a little bit already, but what do you think are some of the insights and conclusions that have really stuck with you that your students have drawn from from Harry Potter and from your from your courses? What are some of the insights that really stick out to you? Boy, that's a tough question. (laughs)
2: Wish I'd had time to make a to make a list for you of those one thing that comes to mind just off the top of my head is that we had a lengthy conversation in my course this fall about Gollum Mm. um, and about the conversation that Gandalf has with Frodo about pity uh, and whether or not uh, Gollum is deserving of mercy Reminds me of that scene in *Prisoner of Azkaban*, when Harry has the opportunity to kill Peter Pettigrew. When he finds out that Peter Pettigrew was the secret keeper and that he's betrayed uh, James and Lily Potter, and Harry says, "I don't reckon my father would want me to become a killer, just for his sake." I mean, it it, and I I guess it ties in with that conversation Harry has with Dumbledore about choices, which as you know, is one of my very favorite quotations from the series. I use it in my, in my email signature and have for years. Um, you know, the, the point that the kinds of decisions, I think this is a thing that my students learn from these works, that the decisions people have to make in those moments are the ones that are really directly relevant to our character and to, to who we are to the kind of individuals that we want to be. Um, So I think they, I'm not suggesting necessarily that they're reading those fantasy works the way we read like self-help manuals or anything like that. But, But I think there is a kind of morally instructive aspect of that. And I think we have the opportunity to talk about things like that when they're in the context of fantasy literature without arguing in a way that might be hard to do in in a conversation in a political science classroom. If you can imagine a conversation about, for example, whether we should show mercy to Osama bin Laden, for example, it's a whole lot easier to talk about whether to extend mercy to Gollum, right? Or to Peter Pettigrew uh, or to, or to uh, Coriolanus Snow, for that matter, than it is to talk about real world people so you know there's an aspect of those discussions that i think is i don't know if safer is the right word it's less perilous when you're talking about fantasy
1: literature than it is when you're
2: talking about the real world
1: agreed it's uh, to to use i mean say it's safer as in there are lowers lower the stakes aren't as high because osama bin Laden was a real person but coriolanus snow you know he's safe inside the novel our decisions aren't going to our our mercy is not going to affect him. It's only the author's mercy, I suppose, that would affect him. But it is, I do love putting characters on trial for my students. I we've I've had groups who have asked that very question of Gollum. And I had a student who said, Nope, he's going in the fire pit, he, you know, no mercy for him, none whatsoever. And I'm like, mm, okay, why? why and he just went absolutely on and on and on and other students were going but that's not nice that's not kind and and and, you know he was a this this student was a total sam in that moment he had no pity whatsoever for gollum and it was just really interesting to see what it was that and he was so emphatic about it and i suppose it's because he felt safe to share that opinion with me and with the classmates
2: and when you listen to your students making arguments like that
1: you're really learning far more about your students than you are about Gollum. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, we we know enough about Gollum, but we're learning about how to how these students can apply their critical thinking skills, as you mentioned. Yeah. And if you could choose any character in any fantasy or pop culture story to be your teacher or to be your mentor, who would you choose? This is my favorite question I'm, to ask. Yeah, I'm
2: thinking only in the context of Harry Potter right now. Well, I think it would be really fun to choose Merlin because Merlin can turn you into animals. And, you know, I, I would yes. not I would not want Merlin to turn me into a predator because I don't think I would enjoy that experience at all. No. Um, but I really love Albus Dumbledore partially because he's not this great perfect wizard he's a deeply flawed human being and i think the way that he carries his pain from the trauma of his past the guilt that he feels about ariana's death um, his family trauma uh, that really resonates with me because i think most of us are the people other people think we are and at simultaneously, the person we know we are in our own hearts, who seldom measures up to the person other people think we are. Uh, however, my concern about having Dumbledore as my teacher is those long periods in which he keeps things from Harry. I mean, Order of the Phoenix is, is a deeply frustrating book because there are such long periods of time when Harry is just clueless about what's going on with Dumbledore and I think trust is so important in a in a student teacher relationship that I think I would find it really difficult to deal with that that kind of thing um I also thought a lot about saying McGonagall when you asked me that question but we just don't have as much experience even in seven volumes of the Harry Potter series with really seeing McGonagall in the classroom. Um so I I guess I'd say Dumbledore for that reason.
0: Have you read Kate
1: Glassman's essay in Open at the Close on McGonagall? I have not yet. I have that book but I have not read it yet. Oh it's a it's brilliantly crafted because it's all about McGonagall and how brilliant she is. But you're right and and Kate Glassman makes the point that there's just not enough of McGonagall in the series and there should be more, but Um, I, I definitely appreciate your insight about Dumbledore because there are those who would say, but he doesn't talk to Harry. He doesn't, you know, he keeps secrets from Harry. And that's, that is a deeply troubling aspect of Dumbledore. But for the longest time, a lot of us were saying, you know, pro Dumbledore, we love Dumbledore as a teacher. He's a great mentor. And in some cases he is, he really is a great mentor to Harry. But as you say, you know, nobody's perfect and teachers, you know, we're, we're human beings first. You know, there are a couple of works
2: that have come out over the last few years as I've been finishing this anthology that uh, mm. I just edited that I've kind of had to set aside. And I'm really just looking forward now to to getting through those. Open at the close is one. I, I have read Cecilia's introduction to that work. And I read to Londa Henderson's essay because I needed uh. to draw on that in writing the introduction, you know, writing about the current state of rolling studies. Uh, and um, Beth Sutton Ramspeck's essay as well. I, I read yeah. some chapters actually from that book as Beth was working on it, but I haven't read the
1: whole thing. So now that you're now that you're putting the editing hat down, you can put the reading hat back on.
2: I need to catch up. And I've also recently become a lot more interested in Cormoran Strike. I mean, I, I have always been an avid reader of the Cormoran Strike series. I have not been as interested in criticism um but louise freeman who knows me well and who knows that one of the ways to get me interested in anything is to talk about true crime recently asked me uh about the fact to what extent i thought rolling was was drawing on real killers especially in in recent british history with uh, with some of the characters in the cormoran strike series so i'm getting more interested in that as well louise knows you well louise
1: knows you well <laughs> So you've got we've got at your essay in Potterversity um the Ivory Tower part 2 is coming out. Do you have any other projects or publications that you like to share with your listeners or past works I, that you like to share?
2: I actually wrote an essay about teaching the Harry Potter series for for an anthology that Cecilia Cecilia Contrafore was working on a few years oh. ago. And there's an interesting story about that which Cecilia allowed me to write about in the introduction to the ivory tower, Harry Potter and beyond that is that she was approached by the Modern Language Association. They have a series called teaching world literature, I think, and they approached her about editing a volume on Harry Potter. Um, And the contributors got to the point of of submitting a revision. The essays were written, we'd revised the essays and the MLA pulled the plug on the project. Boo and offered cecilia an explanation that was uh sort of euphemistic i think my impression and i think cecilia's distinct impression was that they decided they didn't want to be involved with rolling anymore mm-hmm. this was this happened about i think the controversy with um maya forstater began in december of 2019 this yeah. was in april of 2020 i think that that Cecilia exchanged this correspondence with the MLA. So I, I don't know what Cecilia's plans are for that anthology at this point, but I certainly hope something comes of it because I wanted to read those essays. Yeah, um, actually, I'm getting ready to work on another true crime project. My doctoral dissertation is on. Um, American 20th century novels that are inspired by actual crimes and Cold Blood by Truman Capote was kind of my starting point with that project and I've just been asked to contribute an essay to a collection uh specifically about Capote's career so I'll be going back to true crime for a while in the next few months. Hooray. I'm
1: happy to hear that. So the Teaching Harry Potter was that the one edited by uh Valerie Frankel? She has a an way? essay about teaching the Harry
2: Potter series. Yeah, but Cecilia was also working on uh a similar anthology about teaching approaches to the Harry uh, Potter. Series. That's okay. the one it's Cecilia's anthology that the MLA pulled plug on. Yeah, okay. I do have an essay in Valerie Frankel's book as well, and it is um primarily about teaching the Harry Potter uh novels to uh two different at uh, two different academic levels
1: okay so the one that cecilia Concharfar far was trying to work on that one that one was pulled darn it all right. got gonna find another spot for that one then i yes. think cecilia's anthology is
2: tabled i haven't asked her recently what happened with that but i really hope it appears i do
1: too i do too because teaching harry potter it's important all right thank you lana so much for for coming on teaching with magic and for taking the time to talk to me i'm Really, I'm really excited and I'm so glad I got to talk to you and I am crossing my fingers that I am able to attend Chestnut Hill Harry Potter conference this fall. We'll see how my work schedule matches up. I hope to be there
2: myself and I'm, I'm really grateful to you for inviting me and I've enjoyed our conversation today.
0: Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to hit the subscribe button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or your other favorite podcast feeds. If you enjoyed listening, please leave a rating and a review as well. You can read and find out more about Teaching with Magic by visiting our website, teachingwithmagic.blog. You can leave a message on our podcast page, read past Teaching with Magic posts, and check out our book lists on our affiliate page. We also invite you to support us on Patreon. You'll have access to bonus material, our Discord channel, live Q&As, and you'll get a sneak peek at future products such as lesson plans, worksheets, and other teaching tools. The link is always available in our show notes and the podcast page on our website. Thanks again for joining us, and as always, keep making magic.